Today's scripture reading comes from the book of John, chapter 12, verses 20 through 28. Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Sohi, for praying for us. And Aaron, thank you for reading that passage of scripture. Uh, it looked like you actually had it memorized. You didn't have any Bible in front of you, but then I was imagining that Ryan maybe was there as your uh, teleprompter service. <laughs> Thank you for reading that. This morning, we begin a new teaching series that will take us through the summer months on the parables of Jesus. If you read the Gospels, you'll soon find out that Jesus' favorite way of teaching was through story, or what we call parables. In fact, the Gospel of Mark says Jesus didn't teach anything except by using parables, these short stories. Now, parables are great for Christians. Christians, especially those who think they've heard it all and seen it all, and are honestly, uh, if, if they're honest with themselves, if we are honest with ourselves, maybe sometimes a little bored, feel like things have become fairly predictable, and who struggle with checking out, or a little bit of cynicism. The parables break through all of that. Rightly read, they are full of surprise and shock, especially for people who think that they have God pretty well figured out. The parables are also great for those who are new to Christianity, who are new to Jesus, and we hope there are many of you turning in tuning in, rather, who find yourself in that place, who are exploring Jesus and wondering how Christianity might be a resource in this time. The reason parables are great for people who are new to Christianity is because, unfortunately, much of what you see and hear from Christians and the church is not an accurate portrayal or picture of who Jesus really is and what he's about. The parables tell us these things. Now, the parables do this through what we would call, uh, and what scholars would call, indirect communication rather than direct communication through the use of stories. Now, I'm going to do something right now that no seminary uh, professor, preaching professor, or preaching book recommends, but I'm going to begin uh, this sermon with a fairly uh, nerdy theological quote. And I'm going to display that for you, but I'm going to explain it as we go. It's from a scholar named Klein Snodgrass. Now, that is quite a name, but Snodgrass 
has written what uh, has become uh, the main reference textbook on parables. And he has something really great for us to reflect on. Indirect communication versus direct communication. What's that all about? Well, read along with me. Direct communication is important for conveying information. But learning is more than information intake, especially if the learner is someone who thinks they already understand, which is many of us who feel like we, we, we pretty well understand God and Jesus if we've been following him for some time. People entrenched in their current understanding set their defenses against direct communication and end up conforming the message into channels of their current understanding of reality. In other words, everything gets filtered from what we think we already know what we've already seen. But indirect communication finds a way in through the back window to confront a person's view of reality. A parable's ultimate aim is to draw the listener to awaken insight, to stimulate the conscience, and move to action. Jesus's parables are prophetic instruments used to get God's people to stop, to reconsider their way of viewing reality, and to change their behavior. I think that's a fantastic introduction to the power of parable. Jesus told these parables to flip our understanding of reality upside down and to confront us, especially when we think we have things figured out. Here's how I would summarize it, and I have a, a shorter slide to share on my summary of why Jesus taught in parables. He taught in parables in these subversive short stories to help us see things about God and God's ways that we miss because we are so used to thinking about God in the way we want him to be or in the way that we've told, been told that he is instead of how he really is and how he really works. Now, Here's why I think we need the parables in our current situation with COVID-19, with sheltering in place, with all that that has brought into our lives, with the adversity, the difficulty, and the uncertainty. How can the parables help us? I think in this way, many of us are finding our understanding of God and his ways tested, stretched, maybe inadequate for handling, for making sense of, and for walking into an uncertain future like we all are. This is an experience no one has ever gone through before, so we would expect it to be this way, to have our faith and our understanding of God and his ways in this world tested. We're asking questions like, what is God up to in all this? What is God doing in my life? How is he at work? Because all the ways that we have answered that question and made sense of it, because of COVID-19, because of everything we're going through, has been all jumbled up and changed. And so many of us are disconcerted by all of that, understandably. Now, we, we're about 10 or 11 weeks into all of this. And one thing that is certain is that neatly packaged and quick and easy answers will not be sufficient to address these questions that probably all of us are facing at some level. What do we need? Jesus says, at least we need this one thing. We need to make sure that our understanding of God and his ways and his way of working in our lives and in the world is true. We need to make sure that our understanding of God and his ways 
are not based on what we want him to be and how we want him to work, but based on who he really is and how he really works. The parables of Jesus are all about this. Each story gives us a unique window on who God is and what he's up to in this world. Recently, I was reading the story of the Trojan War with one of my sons. The story of the Trojan War, the, the Greeks versus the city of Troy, yeah, you may remember this story, but this war went on and on forever. Gre Greece had come to Troy to try to attack them and take back uh, the queen of uh, Greece who had been stolen. The war waged on and on for long, long periods of time. No progress was made. So the Greeks decided, uh, we are not going to be able to break through the defenses of Troy. But they found a way to get through the defenses, which is the story and the legend of the Trojan horse. They packed their soldiers into the horse. The horse was taken in. The city of Troy thought it was a gift. And there, from within the city, past the defenses, the Greeks conquered the city of Troy. Such is how the parables work in our lives. They get through our defenses. They get through the walls that we've put up, most of which we don't even realize are there for God to get in and do the work in our lives that need to be done. Today, as we start this series on the parables that will probably take us through the summer, I'm starting with a parable that not many people actually list as a part of Jesus's parables. It's from the Gospel of John. And um, why am I doing this? Uh, partly because, yeah, I'm being a little bit of a rebel here. I do think this is a parable, a very short one. But also because uh, recently I heard a series of reflections and podcasts on this that really impacted me and where I currently am in all of this crisis and all the craziness that's happening. And I wanted to sit with it. I wanted to reflect on it and share it with you this morning. So as we look at this parable found in verse 24 of John chapter 12. I believe there is great hope. There's so much this parable can do for us in this time. So let's dig in. Kids, I want you to draw two pictures here at the very beginning. I want you to draw a picture of uh, a seed being planted. Maybe it's you planting a seed. Could you draw that picture? And when you're done with that picture, I want you to draw a picture of a plant or a tree, a strong, healthy one that is bearing fruit. If you're following along and taking notes, you'll see our outline has two main points. This story in verse 24 is a story about Jesus, and it's also a story about us. But first we need to see, how is this parable about Jesus? In the Gospel of John, this passage here is the major turning point actually in the entire Gospel, the whole story of Jesus. Before this, we keep hearing that the hour of Jesus has not yet come. Early on in John, when Jesus' mother uh, is with Jesus at the wedding in Cana, he says, uh, she says to him, hey, they've run out of wine, do something about it. He says, a woman, my hour has not yet come. And so he covertly and secretly changes the water into wine. A little bit later, in interacting with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, Jesus says an hour is coming when worship will not be tied to a particular holy place. In addition to this, there are a few places in the Gospel of John where John says 
there were, there were a few times that people tried to stop Jesus and seize him and take him. But what he says is they were not able to do so because why? His hour had not yet come. So everything in the story is building up to an hour, this hour. When will it happen? And when it happens, what will, what will happen? What will come? What will happen with this hour? We have a phrase where we say the finest hour, somebody's finest hour to describe a moment of time of one's greatest successes or one's greatest achievement. And that's how John is using it here. He's saying this is Jesus' decisive moment, his greatest moment of success, his greatest achievement. That's the hour, what he came for to show and prove the world once and for all who he is. So in, in the context here, in John chapter 12, Jesus has entered Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. This is Palm Sunday. We're, we're picking it up right in the middle of Palm Sunday. Crowds are shouting, crown him king. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And here, for the first time, Jesus says, now my hour has come. It's here. It's arrived in verse 23. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, to be seen in all his beauty and splendor and honor. His greatest moment and achievement is about to happen. To prepare his disciples for this hour, Jesus tells this tiny little one-verse story that I think should be counted among his parables. It's about a grain of wheat, a seed, and a harvest. Verse 24, he says, Truly I tell to you, pay attention, truly I say, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. This parable is about the hour of Jesus, his greatest glory. The hour of his glory, Jesus is saying, is not going to look like glory at all to his disciples. It will not be the hour they expected. In fact, it will appear to them as Jesus' worst hour. It will appear to them like it's their worst hour, like the death of everything that they had hoped for like the death of everything they thought Jesus was and would be. Jesus here in the story is talking about the glory of his death, which is paradoxical. How can a death be glorious? But despite Jesus teaching them repeatedly about this and preparing them for this, they kept expecting, they kept believing that the hour of Jesus' glory would be very, very different. We know this because of what happened when Jesus' hour came, when his death happened. They didn't say to each other, hey, remember the parable and the story that Jesus told us about the wheat, about the grain that died? No, they all fell apart. Peter, their great leader, he denied Jesus. Judas, one of the twelve, betrayed Jesus. They all scattered. Why? Because this was not the hour they expected. It didn't appear to them to be glory and beauty and splendor at all, but shame and defeat. It appeared to them to be the worst hour. But in this one tiny one-sentence parable, Jesus challenged all their expectations and understanding of God and where his glory, his beauty, his power, his splendor is actually found. What does the parable in the story say? It says the glory 
is not in the bearing of the fruit of the plant. The glory is in the seed planted in the ground to die. The glory, the beauty, the power is in the seed that was willing to give itself in order to produce a fruit-bearing harvest. A seed willing to die to give life to others. And this is the heart of who Jesus is and why he came. Jesus is saying, in order for me, the Son of God, not to remain all by myself in the love and the delight and the acceptance of the Father, in order for me not to be all alone as a child of God, I will have to die in order for others to be brought into the life and the acceptance and the delight and the joy of the Father. Like a grain of wheat, he says, I have to die, and this will be my finest hour. This will be my glory. You will see when you come to realize, unless I die, you will have to die. And so Jesus is saying, here in this tiny parable, what looked like his greatest humiliation was, in fact, his greatest glory. What looked like a devastating loss was the greatest win of all time. What appeared to be and looked like God's absence, that Jesus was leaving his disciples forever, was in fact the guarantee that his presence would be with them for all of eternity. What looked like God's weakness against evil and sin and suffering against Rome, against the Jewish leaders who had rejected him, was actually God's power and victory over all of them. What looked like the loss of hope and everything that they had dreamed would happen was the door to an unshakable hope better than anything they had ever dreamed. What looked like proof that God didn't care. That's what it seemed to them. The ultimate proof of the caring and loving heart of God for all sinners and sufferers was shown at the cross. What looked like God ignoring our needs was God meeting our deepest need. What they thought they least needed, a crucified Messiah, was in fact what they most needed. What looked to them like the end was in fact the beginning. This is a subversive truth about God and his ways. The glory of God is found in the hour where we least expect it. The glory of God, the hour and time where God shows up, the moment where God is doing his best work is not where we would look. It was not where we would put our attention. It's not what we would hope for. Here is the paradox about Jesus that makes him different than all other religious founders or founders of any movement. For what other religious founder is their most glorious and greatest moment their death? Think about that. No, their finest moment is their teaching insight. Their finest moment might be their own uh, personal enlightenment. Their finest moment might be their success and victory and the following that they amass while on earth. None of that's true for Jesus. Here at this point, in what he calls his greatest moment, his followers were scattered. Everyone had lost hope. But Jesus said the only way his life and his mission could bear any fruit is if he died. His teaching, his example would not be enough. What is required is his death for us. 
And we know that we are beginning to understand and continuing to grow in Jesus the more that we see the cross as beautiful, as glorious, as great splendor. Because unless he dies, we die. So this is a story about Jesus to explain the paradoxical way, the way that he works, the way that we are brought in to saving eternal security in the love of God. But this story is also about us. And here's where I want to shift to applying what Jesus says in this parable about himself to how it applies to us. Jesus makes this shift in verse 25, if you see. He starts applying this short parable and story to his followers. He takes this story that gives us the key to understanding who he is and what he's all about, and he applies it to our lives. So it's the key to understanding him. It's also the key to understanding our lives and his work in our lives. I want to walk through the way this story and parable applies to our lives by sharing six application principles, and we will share those on the screen as we go. First, how does this story help us make sense of our lives, especially now? One, there are seasons of planting and seasons of harvest. This parable has a general truth that applies to every person, and it's meant to be fully embraced by followers of Jesus. And it's this, just as the natural world has seasons of planting and seasons of, of fruit bearing and harvest, so our lives do as well. There are seasons of planting, sowing, and seasons of fruit bearing. Ecclesiastes 3 1 and 3 says, For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what was planted. There is a time for both. Now, in a world where we expect everything to happen so quickly and immediately and easily and on demand, where we get our oranges, we get our bread, our flowers, all at the store, it's all picked for us. It's placed out. It's uh, Even our fruit doesn't even have any seeds. We might forget that they even come from seeds. It's all there. It's packaged and it's ready. Spend most of our time plucking up what has been planted for us. But we forget none of it is possible without a time to plant. For most of us, life before COVID-19 was busy and always on and always going, and it's easy, it was easy for us to think. Life is one continual harvest, plucking, plucking, plucking. For many of us, we were busy with that. We were plucking up what was planted. We were bearing fruit. We were carrying out our plans. But with COVID and sheltering in place and all the uncertainty and challenges, we entered into a time that is very foreign to us and very hard for us. Largely, it's a time to plant. There are both. Second principle, seasons of planting are like dying. The story compares the planting of a seed to a death. Now you say, um, maybe that's a little bit over dramatic for a seed, right? A seed, it goes into the dirt, it goes into the ground, and its little self is kind of ripped apart in two in order that something actually worthwhile can be produced. I mean, who wants just a little tiny seed? Well, I would say, try telling that to the seed that has its whole body ripped apart in order that something else can come from it. Jesus says, following him 
will mean seasons of planting in these seasons will feel like dying. So what are we planting, friends, during this time? For probably all of us, our entire idea of life in 2020 has not happened as we had thought. Our plans, our dreams, our hopes for what would be, these things we have lost because of all that has happened in our world. Some of us our jobs, some of us what we have relied upon for our mental and emotional health. As a church, we lost our plans. We had retreats and mission trips and all kinds of things planned. And for me and my family, I can't bear to delete all the different things on our calendar. We had trips uh, to Chicago, to Wrigley Field. We had tournaments. We had all kinds of things on our calendar, promotions, things that we wanted to do. All of that is gone. All these plans now are things we're planting. And Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. He knew it wouldn't help him and it wouldn't help us. He made it very plain. He said times of planting, it feels like dying, like the death of life as we thought it would be, life as it should be. With this in mind, we can understand what Jesus is saying in verse 25. Jesus is using very uh, hyperbolic language to get this point across, these terms of love and hate. He says, if you hold to your life as you want it to be, if you hold to your life as you demand it to be, as you've planned it to be, out of fear of losing it, out of fear of what will happen if you plant it and entrust it to God, he says, in fact, you will lose it. But if you hate your life in this, in this world, if you hate your life as conceived of apart from God and his ways, your life as you want it apart from him and his will, he says, if you're able to plant it, he will keep it forever. But this is hard. It feels like dying. Principle three can help. Seasons of planting are required for seasons of harvest. Here Jesus says in this little story, he says, if the seed doesn't die, it just remains all by itself all alone, just a seed. But if it dies, it produces so much fruit. There is a promise and an encouragement here that we need. The seed that is planted and dies will bear fruit. And here's where I've been helped in processing this um, and hearing some other folks uh, teach on this. This has made a big difference for me. There is a difference between something being planted and something being buried. When you bury something, that's the end. You let it go and you let it lie. When you plant something, though, it's not the end. It's the end of one thing and it's the beginning of another. This parable says when we plant, something else will be grown up out of the ground that maybe we didn't imagine, maybe we didn't ask for, maybe wasn't a part of our plans and agenda. But it's something that could not have grown unless we planted what needed to be planted. The sowing and planting is one of the main biblical pictures and metaphors for how growth happens in our lives, how we become the people that God intends for us to be, our, our true selves in Christ. Now, have you ever looked, an illustration, a picture, have you ever looked at a seed that is growing in the dirt, which is just dirt, basically, and said, this is, this is so beautiful. 
Look at this dirt. It's wonderful. Now, there's a big difference between growing an already um, an, an already grown tree, planting an, an already grown tree that can bear fruit in weeks, and planting a seed which not might not bear fruit uh, for years. Now, I wonder if something God may be teaching us, which is a very hard lesson, is that you cannot bear fruit without the planting first. Uh, interesting, this, this week I, I visited Lowe's, I was picking some things up, and I walked by the seed section, and I noticed that some whole sections of seeds were sold out of Lowe's, and that made me wonder, what are, why, why are people, why are people uh, buying out all these seeds? And I wonder if because people are embracing, in some ways, the season, as a season of planting, a season of planting things that in the future will grow. The Bible teaches us that this is one of the main pictures and metaphors we need to embrace in order to understand God and his ways in our lives. 1 Corinthians 15, 36 says, when you, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Everything in us, the Bible teaches, that is not crucified with Christ. Even the good things. All these things must die, must be planted in order for life to spring up in Christ. But Psalm 126, 5 and 6 tell us, Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Those who sow in tears will come back with sheaves of fruitfulness and joy. And Galatians 6 says, what we sow, what is what we reap. Don't grow weary in doing good. Because God says, what we sow, we will reap. When God calls us to sow and plant, we can trust him. We can trust him that what we sow, we will reap. Principle number four. Jesus is present in both our seasons of planting and our seasons of harvest. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, wherever I am, there my servant will also be. What does he mean? That's a bit enigmatic and mysterious. Well, the servant follows the Lord and Master, he says. Okay, but where is Jesus and where do we follow him? I think what Jesus is saying here is that he is in both the seasons of planting and in the season of fruit bearing and harvesting. And when we follow him, we'll be led into both. But for us, when, when fruit is being born in our lives, when our plans are happening, when we're a season of plucking out what is planted, it's a lot easier for us to say, oh, thank you, God, you are with me, you are working. I can see you in my life, in the blessings, and I can thank you for these things. You are here, but when we're planting a seed into the ground and putting the dirt over it, often we struggle and we say, where are you? Jesus, in this, all I see is the dirt and nothing else. He says, take heart, I am here. And planting a seed, the very act of putting a seed into the ground that you can't see what's happening underneath is, a, is an act of letting go of control. It's a letting go of our plans, a dying to ourself and our will and trusting it to God. And for many of us, the truth is that in place of living by faith in Jesus, 
Many of us have lived by faith in our plans. And so in this season of planting, when our plans, so many of them are in the ground, Jesus offers us this encouragement. Where I am, there my servant will also be. I am there in the seasons of planting. And he becomes, in, in a powerful way, more real and more present to us when we're able to bury our plans into the ground and say, your will be done. We can know him in a way. Otherwise, we do not know him. Principle five. Even if we could believe this, all that I've just said with 100% certainty, the experience of planting is still very hard. Jesus, more than any other person could have been or ever will be, was 100% that this is how God 100% convinced that this is how God works. And this was his purpose. This was the reason for him coming into the earth was to plant himself and to die for the sake of the world for this hour. He knew it would happen. He knew it from eternity past. Yet when it came time for the seed of his own life to be planted, how did he respond? It says in the text, he says, my soul is troubled. My soul is troubled. This word here is a very strong word. It means revulsion or anxiety. One scholar translated as depressed. And Jesus is our model of faithful humanity. He was full of anxiety and, and these fears and agitation, even depression at the thought of what lied ahead of him. Now, from this we learn we, we should never say, you know, there is a reason to this, or there is a purpose to this, to ourselves or to others, as a way around our humanity, as a way around the reality that planting does hurt. And there is a lot of planting going on right now. And so there are a lot of hurt and troubled souls. And Jesus says, this is not an indication that you lack faith. Just as he felt troubled, just as he felt the anxiety of planting his own life in the ground and trusting that to God, he says, you can bring that to me, you can take that to me, just as he did. This was, in fact, a prayer as it leads him into prayer, as we see in the following verses. So we should not take the reality that this is hard for us as an indication that we lack faith, but more of an indication that we are in a place of planting. Let me move to the last principle and to the sixth and final point. So if we are hurting, if there's a time to plant and there's a time to harvest and it feels like dying and yet we know God will bring a harvest out of it, what do we do? When seasons of planting are hard, what can we do? And Jesus models for us what we do. We pray. Now that might seem like totally oversimplifying things, but Jesus actually shows us what to pray here in verse 27. He says, what should I pray? What should I say about all this? He's so troubled. Save me from this? No. For this was the purpose for which I came. He says, now glorify your name. Jesus prayed honestly. He said, my soul is troubled. What should I pray? Almost saying, what, what, what else can I pray? I don't know what to pray, but I'm praying, glorify your name. Not save me from this. Save me, he prayed, 
through this. He felt so much in him wanting to pray, save me from this, save me from this. I don't want there to be planting. It's too hard. I don't even want to plant my life. But the glory and the fruit of not saving himself from his death only would come not by avoiding it, by passing through it, by planting himself into the ground. There are times for us, there are things for which we should absolutely pray, save me from this. Lord, save me from this. But when it comes to things that we realize, God is, call, is calling me to plant this into the ground. This is a season of planting. For those times we pray, Lord, don't save me from this. Save me through this and glorify your name. And when we do that, knowing that Jesus planted his life for ours, knowing we have that assurance, we can in these moments of planting receive the assurance of the voice from heaven that says, I have glorified it and I will, my child, glorify it again. Friends, as we go through this season of planting, I pray that this would be my prayer and your prayer. That we would be able to say, Father, glorify your name. Let's do that now together as I close in prayer. I'll pray for you that we would be able to make this the cry of our hearts. Let's pray. Our God, we do confess that what we think would be the greatest hour and the greatest moment for us, the greatest moment when you might show up, uh, the greatest moment of achievement in our lives, is so often not what we need. It's so often according to our thoughts, according to our agenda according to the way we think you ought to work and not what you have called us to and not the way you have shown us that you do work and the saving work of Jesus on our behalf. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for praying this prayer, for planting yourself in order that the fruit of our faith might be made possible. And in this time, Father, when we so many of us are being called to plant, to plant, to plant. Things that we thought you wanted us to do. Things we thought were your will. And now we don't know. And now in many places we do know that they are not. As we come into this place of planting, I pray for all of us that we might be able to plant in faith and in hope and be able to say glorify your name and trust you for the fruit that you will produce in the future that will be greater and stronger and more beautiful and more glorious and more splendor to you. More joy for us, making us more and more like your son Jesus than could have happened any other way. We pray you would help us persevere in faith, that you can and will do that. In the name of Jesus we pray. Friends, before we move to our closing song, one of the things that we are missing out on because of our inability to gather together in each other's presence as the people of God 
is something that sustains and strengthens our faith. It's the celebration of communion. It's where we can remember by holding, by tasting, by seeing the bread and the wine. We can remember that Jesus himself was planted uh, for us, that he died for us, that can strengthen us in these seasons of planting. We are so sad, we continue to lament the fact that we cannot celebrate together this meal. And so instead, and in lieu of that, I want to invite you to pray this prayer where we grab a hold of Jesus together and trust him, even though we can't gather in his presence at the table. His presence continues to be with us. Would you make this your prayer along with me? Oh God, you have promised that you are with us always. I thank you, Father, that by your Spirit, Jesus Christ, the Son, dwells in our hearts by faith. We grieve, however, that this present trouble has kept us from his presence in a special and sacred way, a presence by means of the holy sacrament that the Lord Jesus himself instituted for us and for our faith. And we pray, how long, O Lord? We remember that the Lord has said he will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when he drinks it new together with us, in his Father's kingdom, in our own way, we too find that we must presently abstain for the sake of our brothers and sisters as we await the time our family here can once more keep the feast. And we pray, how long, O Lord? Until that time comes, O Lord, our faith, persevere our faith which is prone to grow feeble and faint under such adversity. May your grace be sufficient for us and may it bridge not only the distance we currently face from your presence and communion, but also the painful distance we feel as we are parted from fellowship with our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray, have mercy on us and help us, O Lord. For we ask this in the name and pray this for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.